The message this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15, please turn there with me. The Gospel of Luke chapter 15. In the 17th verse. Luke chapter 15, verse 17. Where we read these words. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. And especially these words. He came to himself. He came to himself. John Calvin, in his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, opens his entire work with a profound point of philosophy, uh, Christian philosophy, Calvin calls it. He writes, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of ourselves. But, while joined by many bonds, which one precedes and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. Do you understand what Calvin is saying? He's saying that in wisdom, there are two parts of knowledge as for wisdom. On the one hand, you have the knowledge of God. On the other hand, you have the knowledge of ourselves. And yet... The, the mysterious and intriguing thing about that is that these two things are so closely interrelated and intertwined, it's difficult to know which one precedes the other. Which one comes first, the knowledge of God, and that leads to the knowledge of ourselves, or rather, the knowledge of ourselves, and that leads us to the knowledge of God. This is how Calvin opens his work, the Institutes. And so he argues that we can't know God unless we know something of ourselves. He says, we cannot seriously aspire to God before we begin to become displeased with ourselves, to be stung, he says, by the awareness of our own unhappiness. You see, it's not until we realize our own misery, it's not until then that we begin to seek God. But on the other hand, as Calvin argues, we can't know ourselves unless we know something about God. Calvin writes, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. So you see, if we don't look up to the heavens and we consider the majesty of God Almighty... We'll be content just to think of our world in our own terms. And even what we think is some pristine and holy action is really but a filthy rag in the sight of God. That we cannot really understand who we are, he says, in our lowly state, even in our sinful condition, until and unless we compare ourselves with the great holiness and majesty of God. So again, you see, it seems that the knowledge of God precedes the knowledge of ourselves, and yet at the same time, the knowledge of ourselves precedes the knowledge 
of God. Calvin goes on to say that the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find him. Isn't that a wonderful notion? He says again, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but it leads us by the hand to the Lord. And this knowledge of ourself, even in the same sense in which Calvin is speaking of here, I think, and I assert this morning, is the sense that we find in our text, where we read of the prodigal son, and we read that he came to himself. He came to himself. You see, that means that he came to a state of mind, to a new knowledge, a knowledge about himself that he didn't have before. He came to himself. That means he came from another state of mind. When we say he came to himself, that implies that he came from something else. He came to himself. He came from a different state, but now he has come to a knowledge of himself. And so, with the Lord's help, I would like to open up this text. He came to himself under three heads. First, I would like, as we see this passage before us, the trouble that sinners have when they do not know themselves, when they do not have this most necessary self-knowledge. Secondly, I want us to see, again from our passage, various ways in which we come to a knowledge of ourselves. Ways, or if you will, um, agents or vehicles by which we come to that self-knowledge. And then thirdly, I want to consider the fruits of this self-knowledge that we see from our passage. What are some of the the benefits and fruit that we see as the prodigal son comes to himself? And so first, because I haven't even spoken about the context yet, that this is a parable. Let's step back and let's consider the context. This text, he came to himself, is found within this broader context of a parable from our Lord, a parable that's commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. But why do you think it's called the parable of the prodigal son? Well, let's take a look at what happens here as the Lord opens up this parable. We read in verse 11 of chapter 15 of Luke, and he said, that is the Lord said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Do you see? So this father in this parable has two sons. And first, the Lord speaks to the younger of the two sons. And we read right away that the younger son goes to his father and says, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. It is as if to say, Father, I can't wait anymore for you to die. Give me what is mine now. But what kind of response do we see from the father? We just read, and he divided unto them his living. So the father gave the younger son what he said was the portion due to him. And it didn't take very long after the younger son had all this wealth. 
fact, we read in verse 13, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And we read in verse 14, he continued to do that until he spent all that he had. This word riotous, when we read riotous living, means that his life was unrestrained in revelry, that he was not only careless with his wealth, but he used it in lascivious pursuits. And as a prodigal son, the word prodigal here, it means that he lived in a wasteful luxury and a wicked extravagance until, as we said, he spent everything that his father had given him. Now, this parable, as you may well know, has been very powerful in in affecting many of the saints throughout the ages of the church. And so, this parable is intended, it's given for us. And do we not see then prodigal sons throughout the world? Maybe you or I know of someone maybe a young man or a young woman, that we could see it's like the younger son here in the text, that that they are like the prodigal son. And so this is the occupation, if you will. This This is the job of the prodigal sons throughout the world, that they consume all their wealth, that they put to the side any of the the gifts that the Lord has given them, even that they may serve and help others. They toss that aside that has no meaning to them because all they want to do is pursue the object of their lusts. And so they live this lifestyle. They oftentimes waste away. Their bodies waste away. Their health is compromised. And then they lose those precious years of their youth. Let me tell you, friends, that the word of God says that we live, we die, and then comes the judgment. There is no second youth. Once you enter your youth and you leave your youth, you're not going back into it ever again in this life. And so the prodigal son squanders away those precious years of his youth. What a great loss. The prodigal son is like those that we read of in Philippians chapter 3, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Now, this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, as a parable, by definition, should have one central truth or one central spiritual lesson that we take from it. And so what is that in this parable of the prodigal son? Well, a good guide for our interpretation comes from the circumstance which we read here in the opening of the 15th chapter from which the Lord gave these parables, including the parable that we are looking at this morning. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. As he begins, we read, Then drew near unto him, that is unto the Lord, 
all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So it seems as if the Lord is teaching us and speaking to us in these parables, even to tell us why he is receiving sinners and why he is eating with them. Indeed, this chapter contains three parables. You may have noticed when we read it earlier this morning. There is a parable about a lost coin, about a lost sheep first, and then a lost coin, and then a lost son. It seems that all three of these parables have the same import. That it seems that all three of these parables really are speaking to this murmuring of the Pharisees and scribes when they say that the Lord receives sinners and eats with them. It is scandalous to the Pharisees and scribes that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing that. And so in our parable, the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son may represent the tax collectors and the notorious sinners that we see here in the opening of the chapter. And the elder son, in the latter part of the parable, may represent those murmuring Pharisees and scribes. Yet it is the father who appears as most central throughout the whole parable, doesn't he? For we see the father involved in the stories of both the younger son and the elder son. And as we see in the Lord's employment of parables throughout the Gospels, varying degrees of what we may call allegorical elements, in this parable, the the character of the Father here is unmistakably uh, representing God. And though a parable, as we have said, a parable by definition has one central spiritual lesson, and yet it seems that this parable may be an exception to that rule. Perhaps there are two lessons here, one corresponding to the story of the younger son and another corresponding to the story of the elder son. As Calvin says in his commentary on this place, in the first part of the parable is shown how readily God is disposed to pardon our sins And in the second part, he shows us the great malignity and obstinacy of those who murmur at the Lord's compassion. So perhaps there's two lessons here centered around each of the two sons. And so our text, so we come back to our text, our text, he came to himself, is within this context of the first part of the parable that has to do with the story of the younger son. And as Matthew Poole puts it, that in this portion of the parable, among other things, we are taught the true way of a sinner's returning to God. Do you see? This story of the prodigal son is a a representation, a, a demonstration to us of the true way of a sinner returning to God. And so that gives us our context for our text when we see here in verse 17 that the prodigal son came to himself. 
But now let's talk a little bit more about the sense of our text, this expression. This expression is is a, a very intriguing expression. It's remarkable. It only consists of a few words, and yet there seems to be so much weightiness packed inside of this one little expression. He came to himself. Now, as we said, he came to himself in one respect means that he came to a self-knowledge, that he came to a new understanding of himself. For before he came to himself, he was ignorant. But once he came to himself, he had a better understanding. Also, before he came to himself, that is, when he was beside himself, if you will, the prodigal son was maddened by his abandonment to sin. But when he comes to himself, then he comes to a right mind, to a soundness of mind. Before he comes to himself, the prodigal son was blinded by the deceitfulness of sin. But once he comes to himself, he, as it were, comes to his senses. And now he sees how foolish he has been. He says, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and here I am, perishing with hunger. He comes to his senses. And so, let us consider the first head, which is the trouble of not knowing yourself, the trouble of not having that self-knowledge. And as we said, that there is this madness, as it were, a madness which comes when you abandon yourself over to sinful desires. And so we see with the prodigal son, his reason is ruled by his passion. You know, the Lord gave us our reason to govern over our passion. But here instead, his passion is ruling over his reason. And so his passion, usurping the right place of his reason, makes him like, like a wild animal, not guided by reason, but just guided by instinctive impulses. The prodigal son was beside himself, not only in that he was like a madman in that sense, as we said, but also in a certain sense he's like a drunken man, because he did not realize what he was doing. As we read of the drunkard in Proverbs 23, Thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. It's a madness. He doesn't realize the danger that he puts himself in. I think also there is somewhat of a parallel or a likening of the madness of the prodigal son to the madness of demon possession. And let me explain what I mean. When we read of those who were possessed with devils, and then we read of the Lord casting out those devils, do we not often see that whereas before there was a madness, and now, as we read in Mark chapter 5, 15, that the one who was demon-possessed now comes to a right mind. He comes to a soundness of mind. In verse 15 of Mark 5, we read, And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. So it's 
Something like that as well for the prodigal son. When he comes to himself, he comes finally to a right mind, to a soundness of mind. And that's what it means when we read, he came to himself. Now, the way of sin and idolatry is madness. One example from scripture that I often think of, that I think illustrates well the madness of sin, is found in John in chapter 12. We read there that the chief priests consulted with each other so that they might put Lazarus also to death. Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Do you see? It says that they put, they consulted to put Lazarus also to death, meaning they've already consulted to put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. But now this takes place after Lazarus was raised from the dead. And rather than seeing the great miraculous work of the Lord bringing Lazarus from the dead to life, it's like that's completely irrelevant to them because it doesn't fit their, their passion, their idolatry. They were obsessed with people seeing them as the greatest thing in the Jewish church. And that's what we read here. It says that because that by reason of him, that is of Lazarus, many of the Jews went away, left the chief priests, and believed on Jesus. And so is it not a madness, an obsession with your idol, that not only do you want to crucify the Lord of glory, but you even want to kill and murder Lazarus after the Lord just brought him back to life? That's crazy. My friend... Is it not a mad ambition to pursue and labor after something without God, like these chief priests did? Is it not madness for you and for me to seek after riches, pleasures, or the esteem of others apart from God, apart from the Father of lights from whom every good gift and every perfect gift comes? Sin also, as we consider this state of mind that the prodigal son is in before he comes to himself, we see that this condition, this this abandonment to sin, that in that condition, besides madness, we also see blindness. And sin is by its very nature deceitful. Think about it. In order for you to sin... You have to lie to yourself. And not only, not only do you have to lie to yourself, but you have to believe the lie you tell yourself. And what is that lie? The lie is that the sin that you are tempted to commit is for your own good. The lie and the deception of sin is even that the sin that you want to commit is for your greatest good. That's the lie that each one of us believes when we commit sin. And so the prodigal son's understanding is blind, and he cannot discern between good and evil. And when he does, if and when the prodigal son does have any measure of discernment, even then, because his will is stubborn, he will prefer to take the evil choice. Before he comes to himself, rather than returning to his father, 
He prefers to feed the pigs. Is it not like the same with us and our propensity to sin? And so the prodigal son is ignorant of who he is before his maker, destitute of any sound judgment and maddened by his own passion. The wayward sinner is not competent to guide himself and he's not even restrained by either fear or shame. You see, a prodigal son's rebellion is not necessarily due to his unbelief in biblical truths or even the gospel itself. The driving force behind his waywardness may simply be his commitment to do whatever he wants to do. I don't care what it says in the Bible. I don't care what other people tell me. I don't care what my parents tell me. I want to do what I want to do and nothing is going to stop me. That is the spirit of the prodigal son. This is especially common among the youth who are often so eager just to broaden their own experience. And so you see, sin blinds you. Sin makes you dull-minded, like a, a block of wood. Think about that passage that we read earlier this morning from Proverbs 7, where we read that the young man goes after the harlot straightway as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hastes to the snare and knows not, does not realize that it will cost him his life. And as we read at the end of that chapter, that her house, the house of the harlot, is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death, and that many strong men have been slain there. Young man or woman, wherever you are, can hear my voice. Do not be deceived. Don't trick yourself. Don't tell yourself that it's no big deal if you, like the prodigal son, indulge in sin for a season because you think that you can always at some later time ask God for forgiveness. I tell you that even if the Lord in his infinite mercy does forgive you later, will you not still carry with you the burden of deep regret for all the sins that you've committed for the rest of your life? Do you see? There's a difference between being forgiven from the Lord but still having regrets for all the sins that you've committed in your life. It's not a light thing to abandon yourself over to a season of sin. It makes me think of a well-known passage in Augustine's classic work, The Confessions, where he relates to us an account of sin that he committed in his youth. Now, this is about Augustine (laughs) stealing pears, stealing fruit. And so some may minimize it and say it really wasn't that bad of a sin, Or some may discount discount it altogether as being nothing. But 
Augustine writes this confession in his book many years after his youth, many years after he is converted to the Lord and a saving faith, and he still regrets the sin of stealing these pears. Does that mean that Augustine didn't think he was forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ? No. But he still regrets even what people might think is a trivial sin. In his youth he committed it of stealing some pears, some fruit. And he goes on to tell us in this passage, in the Confessions, which I strongly recommend to all of you, he said that he lusted to sin by stealing And so he did steal, but he did not do it because he lived in poverty. In other words, he had the means, he had the money to buy fruit, to buy pears. That wasn't why he took them. He says, nor was he hungry. He didn't take them because he was hungry and wanted to eat. In fact, he says he didn't even enjoy what he stole. He didn't even uh, enjoy the pears once he took them, but rather... He says that he just simply delighted in the sin itself. Just for the the sake of committing the sin, that's why he did it. And he goes on, I won't read the whole passage, but he goes on to speak to the Lord in his confession about the state of his heart that he would do such a thing just to delight in the sin itself. Let me read to you his story. He says, there was a pear tree close to our vineyard, heavily laden with fruit, which was tempting neither for its color nor its flavor. Some of us lewd young men went late one night, shake and rob the fruit from this pear tree. He writes, we carried away great loads of these pears, not to eat ourselves, for we only tasted some of them, but so that we could throw them at the hogs. And we did this, he says. This pleased us all the more because we knew it was not permitted. My friend, I tell you, may it be that if you are in such a state that by the Lord's tender mercy you also would come to yourself, that you would come to a knowledge of yourself, and you would come to questions like these What was I thinking? What have I done? Do you think, friend, that if you put your hand into the fire, that it won't be burnt? Do you think it's a light thing to abandon yourself over to a life of sin? Even if you're able to pull out your hand in time to save it, once it is healed, will there not be many scars upon it? I tell you, you have truly lost your senses, and have gone out of yourself if you have abandoned yourself over to sinful desire. Who are you? Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are before the Lord as a creature of God? Do you know who you are as a sinner under the wrath and curse of God? Come to yourself and have that self-knowledge Or are you blind and ignorant and mad by your way of sin and sinful living? Now I see we're running late, but I will continue 
with just the second head. So we'll just deal with two of the three heads. And the second head is the ways of coming to a self-knowledge, the ways of coming to knowing yourself, knowing who you are. And I want to just look at two things that we see in this passage. The first thing that is clear is that necessity brought the prodigal son to his right mind, as we read in the uh, annotations of the Westminster Assembly and their annotations on the Bible. Necessity brought the prodigal son to his right mind. For the prodigal son chose a hard path, as we read in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15, the way of transgressors is hard. The way of transgressors is hard. It's a hard path that you choose if you abandon yourself over to your sinful desires. And we see this in our passage. We see this in the parable with the prodigal son. For example, in verses 14 through 16, we read that once he has spent all of his father's money, there arose a mighty famine in that land. Isn't it interesting in the providence of God how all these things work together? There arose a mighty famine in that land once he ran out of money. And so he began to be in want. And in verse 15, we read that he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into, that is the citizen, sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And we read in verse 16 that he would fain have filled his belly. Fain, that's an older term. It means he would have readily, he would have happily have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. That's how desperate he was, how hungry he was. And it goes on to say, as if a coda here on the description of his suffering, it says, and no man gave unto him. That is to say, no one, no one gave a thought of him. No one cared about him. He was just that young, filthy man feeding the pigs. But the Lord can use the evil of affliction for our own good. As we read, for example, in Psalm 119, it is good for me, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. (laughs) It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Why? So that I might learn thy statutes, O Lord. You see, when we are at our lowest point, when we are at the bottom, as it were, of the bottomless pit and looking up, because there's no way to look down anymore, perhaps only then are we in a place where we are actually willing to change. Perhaps only at the bottom of the well, looking up, are we finally at a place where our, our stubborn wills have been broken And we are ready to consider making real change. And so it is, is it not, in God's mercy. Yes, affliction can be a work of God's mercy. Because sometimes our pride is so set in us, is so stubborn, that it requires the remedy of the greatest affliction from the Lord to break that stubborn pride. Sometimes, 
we will not be willing even to consider the Lord until we come to such a state of sorrowful suffering so that only then will we be finally wakened up from our sleepy bed of sin. We need to wake up and get out of our bed of sin and come to ourselves. And the second thing that we see in this passage, which is also another means of coming to self-knowledge, of coming to a knowledge of ourselves, is what we see when we see the prodigal son finally recognizing the goodness of his father. The goodness of his father. You see, this prodigal son is drawn finally to the notion of of seeking reconciliation with his father once he remembers his father's kindness. For again, as we read in verse 17, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And here I am in this filthy pigsty perishing with hunger. I want to fill my stomach with these hard husks that the pigs are eating. And yet, back at my father's house, even his servants have bread and and more to spare. How foolish I have been. You see, he's coming to his senses. He's coming to himself. He's coming to a knowledge of himself. But just as we said that the Father in this parable represents our Heavenly Father, so it is with our Heavenly Father that he feeds and cares for all of his children. Return, return to the Heavenly Father because he will feed you. He will care after you. As we read in Psalm 37, verse 25, the psalmist says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet, I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Return, O sinner, to the Lord, and he will feed you. Return, and he will care for you. As we also read in Psalm 34, verse 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. They may go hungry. But they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Return, O sinner. To the Lord, for he is good. Now, the fact that this is the doctrine that is taught in our text, he came to himself, is testified not only by Calvin, but also by the notes, the Marshall notes in the Geneva Bible. For Calvin says that here we have the beginning of our repentance. And the beginning of our our repentance must start with an acknowledgement of the mercy of God to excite us unto hope. And similarly, the Geneva Bible says, the beginning of repentance is the acknowledging of the mercy of God, which stirs us up to hope well. We also see the same blessed doctrine in the second chapter of Romans, where we read, For despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You see? It is the goodness of God that draws us to repentance. 
I want to close with just a bit more of application. Return, O sinner, return to the Lord, for he is good. Do you have a sense of the sweet kindness of the Lord drawing you to himself? Now, we didn't really talk about it, but I think it's interesting, this little detail in verse 20, that it says that the father was looking and waiting for the son. Does it not? We, we gather that from what is said. The father was looking down that road of return, the road that the prodigal son must come to return to his father, because it says that when the prodigal son, after he arose and began to return to his father, it says that while he was yet a great way off, the father saw him. So the Lord, the father here the, is looking for his son. He's looking down that dusty road, waiting for the son to come, such that when the son was still a great way off, his father saw him. And not only that, but once he saw him, it says that he ran after him. Can you picture that? The father, though he was greatly offended by the son's actions, there he is, looking down that road, waiting for his son, and when he just sees him at a great distance, he starts running after him. Could the Lord be looking for you? Could the Lord be looking for you to return on your road back to the Heavenly Father? Is the Father seeking for you and your repentance every day? Even that if you would just return to Him, even before you arrive, our Heavenly Father will run after you with compassion. And as we read here, as it were, fall on your neck and kiss you and have great compassion upon you. O sinner, return to the Lord. Hear the promises from the Word of God. As we read in Hosea chapter 14, I will heal, the Lord says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. Come, backslider. The Lord is ready to receive you. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. And even if you have, if you had to go through a time of affliction in order for you to wake up from your bed of sin and come to yourself, we read also in Hosea 6, if he has torn you, he will heal you. If he has smitten you, he will bind you up. Come and let us return to the Lord. Let us pray. O blessed eternal God and most loving Heavenly Father, O Lord, how extravagant is your love towards us sinners. O Lord, we praise you and thank you that though the sins of the younger son be prodigal, so is your love towards us, that your love is prodigal and that it is extravagant that you are willing, as it were, to waste your love on us, to pour it out on us. And it never, your pitcher of love poured out on us never is dry, but there's always yet still a more abundant supply of love and mercy waiting for us, even if we but be but one sheep 
and a herd of a hundred to return to you in repentance so that all the angels of heaven may rejoice. O God, have mercy upon us, wretched sinners. Draw us to yourselves. Be with us now, we pray, even throughout the remainder of the service. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.